Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this, I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Good morning, peeps, and welcome to Woke AF Daily with me, your girl, Danielle Moody, recording from the home bunker. Folks, as we keep hearing things like the economy is doing well, last week, the Wall Street Journal put out a favorable article saying that they were impressed and surprised at how quickly the U.S. economy was doing and how it has rebounded. And we hear about jobs reports and we hear about all sorts of things. But at the end of the day, it's this push and pull between the oligarchs, right, the mega capitalists that see the rest of us in the 99% as just cogs in a wheel that they grind and grind and grind out to increase their profits at the expense of our health, our happiness, and our ability to attain whatever version of the American dream still exists. And, you know, what we all, I think that what has come into our forefront, and particularly, again, looking at COVID-19 and this being the time when we really had a moment, those of us that were privileged, to take a pause and say, wait a minute, why am I working in this way? Why am I giving 10, 12 hours a day to this capitalistic machine, to this firm, to this organization, to this company, right, to this entity, only to be spit out, right, only to have my wages stagnant, only to watch as, you know, the Jeff Bezos of the world want to thank the Amazon employees for sending them to fucking outer space. And so in my conversation today, I was very excited to speak with Nick Romeo, who covers policy and ideas for The New Yorker and teaches in the Graduate School of Journalism at the University of Berkeley, because he has a new book, The Alternative, how to build a just economy. And what 
I loved about our conversation is that it's some things that we know, right? But it's other things that we don't know. That are we waiting for the 1% to give us permission? Are we waiting for the oppressors to essentially decide that, oh, maybe I found my moral compass? Are there different options and opportunities for the rest of us that don't rely on the benevolence of people who have showed us just how greedy they can be? So in this book, The Alternative, How to Build a Just Economy, Nick Romeo discusses the terrifying trends of the early 21st century, the widening inequality, environmental destruction, and the immiseration of millions of workers around the world. And he talks about private markets and the efficiency of public ones, but basically coming to a place of, is it possible to build an economy that works for the rest of us and understand that capitalism was an idea, just like feudalism was an idea. So can we reimagine something better? That conversation with Nick Romeo is coming up next. Folks, I am very excited to welcome to Woke AF Daily for the very first time Nick Romeo, who covers policy and ideas for The New Yorker um, and teaches in the Graduate School of Journalism at the University of California, Berkeley, and is author uh, of a new book that literally is hot on your shelves right now, The Alternative, How to Build a Just Economy. Um, Nick, let's start off um, with a couple of, I have, a, I have so many questions, um, but I, I, I want to start off with your definition of what a just economy is, right, versus what we understand as the economy that we live in right now, what does it mean for you to create a just economy? Well, first, thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to talk about the book. Um, you know, it's a good question and it's sort of one that I'm not asked often enough. I, I think it's not a self-evident phrase, you know, what does a just economy mean? I, I would answer it sort of at, at two levels. At, at the highest level, I think it's one that reflects human design um, and especially human design in a kind of broadly democratic sense. So rather than being regarded as a domain of technocratic expertise, best left to experts, I think a just economy um, and this, you know, flows pretty naturally from a commitment to democracy. I think it should reflect a kind of broad scale intentionality by people. Um, at, at a more specific level, you know, my answer would have to do with things like wealth inequality mm -hmm. and, and climate change. I think those are two extraordinary challenges that any sort of just economy has to take quite seriously. I think about so many things when I saw the title of your book. Because I think about the amount of greed, right, that we have seen, that I think that most people, we've just kind of been moving through our lives, whether you live in the United States or elsewhere, we've been moving through our lives as cogs in a machine, right, where we've understood and kind of accepted the fact that there are the top 1% that we have been told are smarter 
you know, have more access. And if we were them, we would do the same thing that they do. And so, so long as we can keep our head above water, the rest of us are okay. Then COVID hit. And I think that collectively, we all began to really assess those of us that were privileged enough to be at home and work from home. We were able to pause and assess and see that, wow, this system really is not right. You know, where sure, people take taxes from us, government takes taxes, but when we actually need those funds the most, it requires emergency, right? And when we see that people are working two, three, four jobs, we make something sexy and we call it the gig economy, right? We make it seem like it's fun to work four jobs in order to make ends meet. I wonder how you think that our understanding of how our system has been unjust, right, was really exacerbated during COVID and now makes room for your book, your alternatives in terms of how we are thinking. Like, I just think as workers, we've just been doing. And then there was this great pause. And now we're thinking about what we've been asked to do. Absolutely. I mean, I I think I I broadly share your analysis of the past few years. Um, You know, in the book, I talk a little bit about this sort of default assumption that morality and justice are simply irrelevant concepts in the economic sphere. And, you know, I kind of I trace this back through a few centuries of, of economic and political thought. There's a kind of tradition that says the economy kind of akin to the natural world is this law-governed realm that only scientists can understand. Um, when they do understand it, the laws are inevitable. They can never be changed. And so the best you can do is just kind of uh, struggle to get by. Um, or if you happen to be in the top 1%, like you mentioned, you can maybe congratulate yourself and feel occasional pity for other people, um, if, if that. So the the target of a lot of critique, both within academic economics, but also, you know, by people in the private sector and the public sector who are actually pulling policy levers, running businesses. I think at some level, the target of critique is this um, inevitable view that the economy is a realm where morality has no, no place. And all we can do is follow laws that are akin to the laws of physics. So, you know, in the book, I talk about a lot of people within academia who are trying to reform economics education in order to kind of expand our political imagination to say, actually, you know, a lot of key decisions about sort of distribution of resources, labor markets, quality of jobs, impacts on other people in the natural world, these are fundamentally moral and political. And to regard them as um, just sort of like the mechanistic model that a lot of neoclassical economics has used is is a mistake, and it's also a mistake that really benefits entrenched interests. Um, and, you know, I also I, I agree with you that basically COVID was this little opening, a kind of clearing in the clouds where people had a sense that the gaps in the system, the fallacies in the reasoning, were a little bit more present and salient maybe than they had been in previous years. Pride from Tomboy X, celebrating pride in the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. 
Creating sustainable size and gender-inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit-tested for all-day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. The wait is over. The shy is back on Paramount+, and the stakes have never been higher. Everything changes on the South Side when a new threat comes to power in the Showtime original series from Emmy winner Lena Waithe. Battle lines will be drawn, alliances will shift, and danger lies around every corner, leaving everyone to wonder who they can trust. Visit ParamountPlus.com slash shot to get a 50% discount off the Paramount Plus with Showtime annual plan. Offer ends July 14th. Subscription auto-renews. Restrictions apply. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. I love when you said, like, open up the imagination. And this idea that the way that we've thought about the economy has been like, oh, well, then there's gravity. There's capitalism. There's gravity, right? Like, the, you know, it, it is just what it is. And anytime there is any type of movement to think about this structure differently, who it is created for, the system and who it's created for, who benefits, who doesn't, who's left behind, how most of us are one emergency bill, one emergency visit to, you know, the hospital away from, you know, bankruptcy, except we can't actually <laughs> apply for bankruptcy, right? Like you're not a corporation, you're not uber wealthy, right? So for the average person, there's no way out. What I think about's interesting and, and some, and I want you to offer up some of the suggestions that you provide and solutions that you offer in the book through your analysis is what it seems to me is that in order to make a change, though, there needs to be a will to do so. And I'm not certain that the people that are in power, that are controlling the levers of power, that are tilted towards their favor outside of there being some type of moral compass, which I just have not seen over the past 10 years, let alone, you know, the entirety of my career in politics, that there is a will that is there, that they are incentivized by just feeling good about not hoarding all of their resources at the top and, and seeing that, well, workers, these people are just expendable. So I'm wondering where will comes into the solutions that you offer, and please do share some of the communal ways of operating and being like you did with examples of Patagonia and others. Sure. Yeah. You know, I, I think you're right that there are certainly some folks for whom moral motivations are not particularly strong and there's not a lot of will. Um, you know, that being said, within the book, I try to bring some sort of some nuance to the analysis of like the private sector, for example, because there are people with a range of motivations and kind of my goal is to spotlight some of the people doing really interesting and powerful work. So to give you a few examples, um, you know, people talk a lot about retiring business owners. 
estimates vary, but everyone agrees that a huge percentage of American GDP is represented by folks who are in their 60s and 70s. And these folks are on the point of transition. Now, transition can take multiple forms. You could sell your your company or your business to private equity. Um, You can make a lot of money doing that, but then private equity may fire half of your staff. (laughs) Um, They'll certainly prioritize return on investment over wages and benefits for workers or, say, donations to organizations that support environmental causes. Now, a sale to private equity is is not the only option for retiring business owners. One chapter in my book, I look at people who are converting the ownership structure of their businesses to a legal vehicle called a perpetual purpose trust. And just like the name suggests, it exists in perpetuity and it stipulates a purpose as the sort of defining reason Um, the basic motivation of the business. So rather than profit maximization, your purpose might be, um, well, I talk about a bakery here in in Oakland, California, where the purpose is to hire folks who are formerly homeless or incarcerated and to do profit sharing with employees. So now, you know, anyone who wants to buy this business in the future has to respect that purpose. So it's sort of protecting a social mission above the kind of standard profit maximizing one. And, you know, there are enormous businesses doing this. Like you mentioned, Patagonia is one example. So there's $3 billion business using a purpose trust model. Um, But there are also lots of smaller businesses, you know, people who might do three to $5 million of revenue annually, um, all the way up to mid-range, say 50 to $100 million. And, you know, if you aggregate this, it's, it's, it's not a trivial part of the American economy. And so, I think there is some optimism with that kind of purpose trust model. Although, like you say, ultimately this all hinges on a, a previous will, a previous moral commitment. So I, I agree with that point. I wonder too, there there are, and and I think that you you also do examine in, in other countries and, and and other spaces where there is more of a communal sense of being, right? That if you know, and 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 I have worked inside of of movements that want to create a movement around you know this idea that we're not all islands onto ourselves. That it isn't about you know this one wealthy person over here because if everyone around you right is suffering, then how wealthy are you truly? And is there a way to have a shared sense of responsibility? And you can look at countries that, you know, we, t- we talk about on this show that have, you know, robust healthcare systems because the money that was being drained out by taking care of those that were ill. It's just like, well, we can create this like we have the resources and the, the tax dollars to do this. Again, to me, though, it comes back to the sense of who is the collective we that we want to do right by. And. If we were, you know, if, if America was a homogenous type of place, then I could see, oh, yeah, let's let's move into this economy that is more of a shared economy, as people have said, where the workers get to have a piece and that incentivizes them. Didn't we have something like that where businesses offered pensions? You put in this amount of time for us and then we're going to take care of you. Absolutely. Um 
You know, one thing I talk a lot about in the book throughout is worker ownership. And there are different models and different companies that are really trying trying to expand the percentage of American workers, but also workers around the world, who own equity in the companies for which they work. And to your point that there used to be a more widespread embrace of this model, um, you know, something I mentioned in the book, if, if you think about Sears department stores, um, a once mighty American brand, um, you know, if, if Amazon today had the same level of worker ownership that Sears department stores did in the 1950s, Amazon workers, um, and this is actually from 2018, so the figures would be higher now, but Amazon workers in 2018, each one would have owned about $380,000 of equity in Amazon. So, you know, think about folks delivering packages, um, driving forklifts around warehouses. If all of those folks had, you know, today it would be closer to a million dollars. I think Amazon stock has close to doubled since 2018. Um, if all of those folks had hundreds of thousands of dollars of equity, uh, that would go a long way towards creating a middle class. If you expand that model to the top 100 businesses in America, um, you know, I think that that would be a pretty extraordinary change. Um, and it's it's just worth remembering that, yes, pensions used to be widespread. Worker ownership used to be much more common. Um, there's no sort of physical law akin to gravitation preventing this from being the case again. Um, you know, another thing that comes to mind is the model of the Mondragon cooperatives in Spain, which I'm happy to talk about. Yeah, please, please. Yeah, unpack that for us. Yes. You know, so Mondragon is, is really fascinating to me. They're a network of co-ops in the northern part of Spain, and a huge range of industries are all organized in this cooperative manner. So, you know, they do everything from manufacture of industrial components like parts of jet engines or elevators to service-oriented things like there are grocery stores organized according to this cooperative model. The basic feature of the model is really two elements. One is a six-to-one cap of highest to lowest worker pay. So if, if you're the CEO and I'm the lowest paid worker, you can never make 6x what I do. Mm -hmm. So that's a key component of their model. Another key component is democratic governance. You know, people often talk about workplace democracy. So what does that mean? It means that every worker gets a vote on key decisions. Mm -hmm. and, and these can be really impactful decisions. Like during the pandemic, should we decrease our hours to protect our long-term interests? Or um, should we, you know, should we consider a new acquisition? Do we want to buy another company? One worker, one vote on these decisions. So it's, it's a kind of radically democratic model. And it's also a model that limits wealth inequality. Um, you know, one thing I really like that you said earlier is that wealth alone is sort of inadequate to, to, to give someone a good life. Yeah. I, I quote in yep. the book an engineer at Mondragon who had actually declined some competing job offers elsewhere in Spain where he would have made a lot more money. And what he said to me was, I, you know, I'd rather live here with a lot of friends than live alone like a king. Um, I think the American dream, unfortunately, is, is closer to living alone like a king. Mm -hmm. um, what I like about his comment is the suggestion that that's actually sort of a nightmare, right? That's, that doesn't respond to sort of a, 
a basic aspect of humans, which is we like community, we like other people, and radical wealth inequality tends to erode those those common bonds that make for a good life. Let me ask you this. What are your thoughts then in, in 2023 in the summer? You know, we had so many different industries were on strike, right? You had the writers, you had the actors, you had, you know, the auto industry, um, you had, you know, all of these different groups were going on strike and unions are seeing a resurgence in a way, right, to increase worker protections, pay and all of these things. How does that pair into, again, not just asking for the bare minimum, right? Like bathroom breaks, right? Like, you know, not just asking for the bare minimum, but how does that kind of movement pair with what you're offering in your book, which is this robust alternative, multiple alternatives? We don't have to live this way under this system. I think unions are an essential part of winning some of these concessions, you know, whether that's living wages or actual equity ownership in companies, more humane working conditions, more meaningful and satisfying jobs. Um, you know, collective bargaining has has been crucial to keeping wealth inequality in check. We know that from the middle decades of the 20th century when union rates were high and inequality was relatively low. There are strong legislative headwinds. It's it's tough to organize. The, the field is kind of tilted against unions at this point. Um, I think undoing that would be a great sort of policy goal. Um, you know, what, one thing I talk a little bit about in the book, though, is that just like you said, it, it's sort of it's one thing to to win a bare minimum, right? Like maybe just enough of a wage increase that that folks can pay the rent, that they can afford food. Um, but if you actually think about the kind of financial necessities in our current economy, given the cost of housing, the cost of a college education, wage increases alone are, are pretty unlikely to ever build up the sort of generational wealth that would allow people to, to buy a home in most parts of America, to pay for college education for their kids or their grandkids. I think for that level of wealth accumulation, we need to be thinking about more than wages. We need to be thinking mm -hmm. about, about worker ownership, where value creation doesn't just flow away to shareholders. It goes directly to people who are day in and day out doing the work, whether that's at an Amazon or really anywhere else. Happy Pride from Tomboy X, celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women, creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection, obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes three extra small through six X. Visit TomboyX.com. The wait is over. The shy is back on Paramount Plus, and the stakes have never been higher. Everything changes on the South Side when a new threat comes to power in the Showtime original series from Emmy winner Lena Waithe. Battle lines will be drawn, alliances will shift, and danger lies around every corner, leaving everyone to wonder who they can trust. 
Visit ParamountPlus.com slash shot to get a 50% discount off the Paramount Plus with Showtime Annual Plan. Offer ends July 14th. Subscription auto-renews. Restrictions apply. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered for just being me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R, under 17, not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Last question for you, Nick, is a political one, you know, a deeply political one, is that, you know, we're in the midst of the beginning of a most consequential presidential election this country, I think, has ever seen. And, you know, we're, we're, we're have one party that is hell bent on, you know, authoritarianism. Right. And a king. Right. And, and holding up in the re- recreation of a king and another that is struggling to find a message that resonates. And we always say, oh, it's the economy. It's the economy. But how we talk about the economy and what we say about the economy doesn't it from a political sphere doesn't ever seem to land with workers and in a layman's space. And so if you were offering up right to Biden, like we need to break open and have, like you said, deep imagination, right? Like give people who are suffering from hopelessness a sense of what is possible. What would you say? Well, that's a, that's a tricky question, but I, I guess, you know, my advice would be to focus on some of these core economic issues. And, you know, two things in particular come to mind. Um, one is bringing industrial jobs back to America. Um, you know, the Inflation Reduction Act went a pretty impressive distance in that direction. But I think there's there's a sort of a lot more to do both in communicating and sort of celebrating what's been achieved, but also in actually achieving more. Um, You know, I I think that really since NAFTA in in the early 90s, the Democrats have have not worked particularly hard for the working class. They've cared much more about the sort of wealthier sectors of the economy. So one key element, I think, is actually creating industrial jobs here in America. this is potentially bipartisan as well, right? There are mm-hmm. folks on the right who, whatever you think of their motives, they're concerned about supply chain security. They're concerned about national national security. They want more production onshore. So that's kind of one point. And then I guess the second point, not to be too much of a broken record, would be, um, you know, to to make, say, corporate tax breaks, if, if you have to have them, what if all of those were contingent on, extending worker ownership to all employees. So again, mm-hmm. if, if we think about the 100 largest companies in America, um, if they adopted even modest levels of worker ownership, like Sears had in the 1950s, you know, we could have millions of workers with hundreds of thousands of dollars in equity. And I think that's the sort of change to folks' circumstances that the Democrats, if they could point to that and say, well, look, now you have $400,000. We believe in in the working class. That would not be a hollow message, right? That would be a a real achievement. Yeah. 
Nick Romeo, thank you so much for, for making the time for Woke AF. Folks, the book is The Alternative, How to Build a Just Economy, and it is out now, so get it. Nick, I hope that you come back and join us again. This was a really illuminating conversation for me on how to think about the economy and talk about it differently. So appreciate you. Thanks so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. That is it for me today, dear friends on Woke AF. As always, power to the people and to all the people power. Get woke and stay woke as fuck. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. Open a limited time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average. Plus, it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home.